We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Get ready for Brexit on the 31st of October. Brexit will bring changes that affect businesses in many ways, particularly if you buy from EU suppliers, sell to EU customers, provide services to EU clients, and receive customer data from other businesses in the EU. Businesses need to prepare. Find out how at gov.uk slash Brexit. Get ready for Brexit on the 31st of October. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. It is once again time for the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your co-host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. Welcome to a February edition, the National Signing Day edition of this podcast. I know it's been about a month since we've been with all of you. Alan and I all hope that you're doing fantastically well that life is grand, and that you're feeling the buzz of a wonderful signing day yesterday. We're going to unpack all of this for you, but before we do that, we have to thank our beloved patrons. If you love the content on this show, there are several ways to show us your appreciation. One is you could drop us a like on Facebook. Two is you can head over to Patreon and become a patron. You can find these links anywhere the podcast is found, or you can show us our love just by listening. That's also pretty cool, too. Um, we want to thank a couple new patrons who came on in the month of January, even though we weren't on. Pretty sweet, Alan. Uh, Randall Lockhart and then Terry Tokash or Takash. If I got that wrong, write me some hate mail. That's totally cool. And still the king of the jungle, Alexander Leventhal. It's been too long, so I've got to say your name, Alexander. It's good to be back mentioning your name on this very podcast. But thanks to all of our patrons. We appreciate you. We will continue to give you love and shout outs on all of our shows. Without further ado, let's jump right in to what all of you are thinking about, and that is how good was this recruiting class? How good should we feel about this class? Alan, walk us through National Signing Day. I'll do it, James. So as you guys know, with the early signing day, most of this class was already 
in the barn, I guess, as we'll say. And so only a few guys were really signing, but a lot of those guys were high profile guys who wanted to wait out the rest of the recruitment process. So here, as we stand on Thursday, February, whatever this is, 7th, the Gators have the number nine ranked ranked recruiting class, and we're using the 24-7 composite rankings to talk about all the numbers we're going to talk about today. So if you want to follow up on some of that data, you can look there. And they combined uh, you know, the, the ratings of several recruiting services. So finished top nine, uh, two top 50 players, four top 100 players, 13 top 300 players. From where we sat a few months ago, this is quite a lot of movement. We're going to get into a little bit of, of who signed yesterday but in a minute. But James, I want to start uh, and, and ask you a question here because I know uh, you weren't just – hovering around the panic button you were laying on it you were like sleeping on top of the panic button you know pressing it with everything you had let me ask you this very simply uh are you impressed i'm extremely impressed and i've gotten a lot of comments that's why i'm kind of smiling and laughing when i say this on the panic button comment but i think it was extremely appropriate for me to have pressed the panic button and also let the record state alan that i said it wasn't over but that we were going to have to have and against the expected value return for this to happen. And that's what's most exciting, is is don't sleep on this. The close that we had was against the odds. And that makes it all the more impressive to me. And we're going to unpack the numbers of this. Uh, But I had said when I was on the panic button that we needed to get to four top 100 players to be what I would have considered to have been the the pie-in-the-sky result, given where we were. Not the pie in the sky result where things could have been, everything went perfectly from the start of recruiting, but where we were to where we finished, Alan, pie in the sky. And we we hit that. We finished with four top 100 players. I don't think we really could have done any better given when we last potted and the pod before that about recruiting to get to where we are. I'm extremely impressed with how this staff closed, with how Dan Mullen closed. With this recruiting class, we're going to put into context how good it was relative to other ones, but most importantly, Yes, very impressed, very satisfied. I am no longer on the panic button. Panic button is safely removed away from me. And I'm (laughs) feeling optimistic towards next year's recruiting class, which should hopefully get to that elite range we're looking for. But regardless, phenomenal recruiting season for Florida. Uh, Things did not look good in September or October. And I think even the most hopeful of Gator recruiter fans or recruiting fans would have thought this result was stratospheric several months ago. Yes, this is definitely on the top end of some of the expected outcomes. I I, would, I have to say this. I'm extremely impressed with the staff. You know, I think throughout the whole process, but especially in and around signing days themselves, um, some big wins during each of those periods. And, you know, I, I was not panicking, but I was certainly concerned. Uh, you know, I don't think it's, I don't know, acceptable if that's the right word I can use for Florida to have a class in the 20s right that's not helpful that would have to be some catastrophic circumstances for that to be considered okay like Florida should be at least in the top 15 right that that's an okay result and into the top 10 is a good result Um, I think even considering our circumstances where we started in the current climate is a very, very, very good result for this class and I think what they're capable of. Uh, we've, we've said all along that Dan Mullen is a guy who 
improves players. He gets them to maximize their potential and their value. So if he can take this raw material and do that, I think it's going to pay big dividends. Now we're going to talk about maybe what we need to see in the future, but for where we started and where we're at, this is a huge, huge win. Uh, I think for the program and for Dan Mullen himself, I think it takes a lot of pressure off of him. Uh, a lot of the buzz and criticism was, could he get a top 10 class? Could he become an elite recruiter? He's not there yet, but he's certainly forging out a path towards that. And that seems like much more of a likely scenario than what we were when the class was sitting in the thirties early on in the season. Uh, James, I'm going to ask you to squint a little bit, and I'm going to tell you why this class is even a little bit better than what I just said. So I, I said we had two or four top 100 players. Now, these numbers are rather arbitrary. This is not exact science. So there's a guy uh, right there at 10, I think, 4. Yes, 104, Keon Zipper, and then Diabate at 109. And then even another, uh, if you want to add another top 300, Jalen Jones at 306. So... Actually, I think we, you know, if you just a little bit standard deviation there, we have six top 100 players and then 14 top 300 players. That's even more impressive to me. Like if we're going to up that, if you want to say how many top 100 players do you need? You know, I think that's even more impressive if you just look just outside that expected range. That if does, you're willing to. That does matter. That does matter. I think that you draw an arbitrary line to make comparisons statistically. I think the the important takeaway, and we're going to walk through those tiers, if you will, the important takeaway of what you're saying, Alan, is to recognize that the t- more top-heavy the class, the better it probably is. And and I think what you're really saying, which is true, is the closer your players are to number one, the better. The closer they are to number 100, if they're in the top 300, right, the better. And the closer they are to 300, if they're outside that range, the better. Not all three stars and four stars are created equally. In fact, maybe you ought to go to like seven stars and you could get a better idea of where that is. But regardless, that that is true. We have a couple guys hovering on the periphery, which tells us that we have you know, a, a high rate of higher ranked guys. And before we kind of talk about what that looks like against everyone else, we, we still have a, an emptiness or a dearth of elite guys. Um, and I'm not going to say that as a knock. We're going to talk about two things today. One, we're going to talk about this class in context to the other classes that exist, where we think it ranks according to a tier system. And then we'll talk about just a little bit about next season, what it would take or what we would expect uh, for us to get to kind of get to the tier one level, or at least the right behind Alabama and Georgia level, which would be realistic. And I think it's important to know both of those things. So let's let's start unpacking this class relative to others, Alan. And we're going to use a tier system. And what I mean by that is we're going to kind of place teams in tiers based upon a couple of things. One, we're going to heavily emphasize top 100 players. Two, there's going to be extra weight given to top 30 players. Now, we could go top 35, which would be your five stars. We're going to call it a top 30. So top 100, top 30. And then you're going to get the blue chip ranking, which I'm actually going to drop a little lower, which other people put a lot of value in. Your blue chip percent ranking basically takes your four star and your five stars and divides it by your total number of recruits. The only problem I have with that is I think there's a wide range in four star talent between the gap they have. So we're going to focus more on the top end of these classes to kind of tier them out. If you play fantasy football or fantasy sports of any kind, you're very familiar with this tier system. And basically, you're kind of looking for your superstars, your stars, and then your contributors. That's kind of what this looks like. We said before we came in, Alan, that like a tier two slash three class for Florida would have been getting four top 100 guys, 
depending on how highly those guys are ranked, would have kind of solidified maybe whether we're tier two or we're tier three. And so first we'll start with the superstars, right? Alabama and Georgia. And to give you an idea of what they're doing, Bama signed 12 top 100 players, three in the top 30, and they have a 96% blue chip ranking. And the reason it's not 100% is they signed one three-star, which was the number one kicker in the country. Kickers don't get more than three stars. Yeah, so that's ridiculous that every guy they signed is a blue chip prospect. I mean, that's Alabama. That's only them. Only are they capable of doing that. And they're the greatest recruiting school in the history of, of recruiting since it's been measured. So it's not fair even as a Florida fan to think that we're going to reach that level. The facilities are infinitely better than ours. They have a legendary coach. We're not going to get there anytime soon. So. But that, this thing is known as they, they ruin every curve. Whatever you're trying to measure, they're so far out there that it, even just historically, that it it would try. It'd be like trying to measure yourself against the greatest thing of all time and say, "Well, we're not there yet." Well, you'll never get there. This is, I think, a historical aberration. You know, it's kind of like the Patriots and what they're doing. No one is ever going to achieve this again. It's just too rare. It's too difficult. Correct. And so we look at them to just say, "Okay, this is achievable." If you're the best ever at this, that's what it looks like, and you're seeing it right there. A close second in our own SEC East division, of course, is Georgia with nine top 100 players, a whopping. Five top 30, Allen, which is truly remarkable, and an 83% blue chip rate. So their class even more top heavy than Alabama's, if you will. Uh, you know, difficult to contend with here in our own backyard. Of course, our friend Tyler Rimmery loves to throw around that they are clearly dropping bags on everyone and paying everyone to come to that school. Maybe that's true. If it's true, at some point in time, they will get caught. I just refuse to believe that you can be sloshing around that much cash every recruiting day and not get caught by it. But Bama and Georgia, I think rightfully so, are both tier one. You could consider Alabama tier one and then Georgia like tier 1.5. But I think both of them are are well above everyone else. Yeah, they're, so. they're in a class by themselves currently. Um, the distribution between them and the next and the the next tier, the, the third team, is actually, you know, it's if you're going to look at this, like maybe Bama's number one, Georgia's number three, and the next team, Texas, might be like 10th. If you're looking at the gap between how close are they to one another? They're not just one digit apart. They're, there's actually a pretty sizable difference there. So we're not expecting Florida even to slide in with Georgia in this tier one with Alabama with Dan Mullen as coach. I don't think that would be a fair expectation. I think we know that Dan Mullen is maybe, this is a one-year sample size, but also he did Mississippi State, maybe one of the best player development coaches and just overall team leading coaches in the SEC. So he doesn't need to recruit at that extreme level to compete with Kirby Smart. I think we know that. But hopefully he gets into this next tier. This would be tier two. So tier two is going to start with Texas. Now, Texas class, Allen is interesting. You're going to see how these classes vary and why we're going to put certain emphasis on stuff. They have five top 100 players, so only one more than we have. They only have one top 30 player, so they have one elite guy versus our none. But they do have another five-star. So they have a guy that's just outside number 30. That's the squint test you talked about. And they have a 71% blue chip rating. So they are ranked number three. But you could make an argument, Alan, that some of these teams that come after them are just as good or maybe even a little better of a class, depending on how much emphasis you put on the top end. But this is extremely achievable. In fact, we weren't far away from this kind of class this year, Alan. But you look at something like this next year, this is something that's extremely achievable for a Dan Mullen staff to get right up in there. And like we talked about from day one with Dan Mullen, a top five class. That's not far. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because if you put these teams together, you know, you've got Bama, UGA, and then Texas, Texas A&M, and LSU, very clearly the, the second tier. And then the next tier down, 
Oklahoma, Oregon, Michigan, Florida, Clemson, all those teams were separated by like a point or two in the cumulative ranking. So we're actually closer to number six than we are to number 11. So that's the difference between where we're at and us finishing six would be one guy on our team being slightly rated slightly higher. So this is in that third tier very clearly. So nine and six are basically interchangeable in this um, scenario. So we're, we're knocking on the door of that second tier. We're very firmly in that third tier. And like I said, if you're like, oh man, I wish we were eight or seven. Essentially we are. Those, those numbers are, are meaningless for this. But if you're looking at the tier thing, we're very clearly in tier three. And where we'd like to be at least in the near future is tier two. And that's probably the, the big picture of it. We just set a lot of tiers, a lot of numbers. But if you're thinking about that, we are one step behind probably where this class needs to get or where this coaching staff needs to get in order to have the kind of consistent success that we're looking for. And that means signing two typically five-star players per right. year. And that's what we're looking at here. And five stars being top 35-ish. We're calling it top 30 um, on the metric here. And that's what you're going to see with these teams. So Texas A&M, Jimbo Fisher, uh, obviously Tom Herman at Texas, a guy we talked about after losing to Maryland. Are we worried about him? No. We felt like he's a great coach. We felt like Texas is moving in the right direction recruiting. You're seeing that. He's passing the three-year test thus far. This year should be a big year for Texas on the field. Follow them. And then here comes A&M. Jimbo Fisher, uh, now Florida State, obviously really crying over what they lost with him. They wanted him out. Big mistake. We'll get to them in a minute. Right. Texas A&M, seven in the top 100. Remarkable class from him. Two in the top 30. And a 59% blue chip rate. So this, Alan, to me, illustrates why I don't really love the blue chip rate. Is It does mean he signed some more role player, three-star players. But much like fantasy football, it's far more important to have the elite players than it is to value your role players. Most of those guys aren't even going to start. And so I think sometimes fans get lost in the importance of having elite talent. And so A&M has done that with two top 30s and seven top 100s. They have a good shot of getting very important and significant players out of the top crop of that class. If you're looking at Florida's class again, that's the one deficiency we have. We have more four stars than A&M does. But again, for me, for my narrative, for opinion of this show, from my side, I'd take the elite players over having more four stars, even with a developer like Dan Mullen, because those are the guys you need to win. The reason Clemson beat Alabama is because of Trevor Lawrence and because of their defensive line. It's because of a few elite players scattered amongst a team of otherwise lesser players that was able to beat Alabama. And so you can never sleep on that narrative, I think, Alan. And you're going to see that continuing until, like you mentioned, we kind of get to these next tier three teams where most of them maybe have one five-star or sort of a borderline guy um, there. So that's next year's goal for Florida. But this year, moving on down the list, LSU, only four top 100s, but two top 30s. And they have a blue chip percentage of 56%. They do have a three-star guy. I mean, they have three five-star guys. They got another guy right outside the bubble, right? Then you have Oklahoma, four top 100s, three top 30s, a 67% blue chip. Oregon, great class with crystal ball, five top 100s, one top 30, but only 46% blue chip ratio. Michigan, three top 100s, one top 30, two five-stars at 60% blue chip. And then here comes Florida, four top 100 players, 68% blue chip. But what do you see missing, Alan? we don't have a top 30 guy. And I would say that that is the big, I don't know, lack in this class. I talked about it last time, lacking some of the star power. And we did add a guy um, that we're going to get to here in a minute, um, Elam, who's right up there as a top 50 kind of player. But that's what's setting these classes from the top end to where Florida's at. Now, 
signing a majority of four-star guys is impressive. And, you know, I think it builds a lot of depth around your program. So if you miss on some of these guys, you're not hurting as much. But that that sets what where Florida's at versus, you know, these top the top tier and then the you know second tier is those five star kind of guys. And I think that's really gonna inhibit us in when we play those teams specifically that we're lacking some of the elite, elite guys that you need to, I think, win consistently against top, top competition. Now, before we forge on and look at some other schools of interest here down the list, tell me, Alan, about the balance of this class. One thing that is important to look at, although I think a little less important in the grand scheme of things, is did we address our needs? And that's kind of the famous, okay, are we getting totally out of whack? Are we missing you know, linebackers entirely, which has hurt us before, right? Are mm-hmm. we missing position groups? You've got to do that. Good recruiters have to do that. You can wind up with unbalanced classes. So did we address our needs? How do you feel about the personnel that we recruited position-wise? I think the the staff did a fantastic job of balancing this class and fitting needs. Um, we have a ton of guys at linebacker, both maybe traditional linebackers and and then guys who are going to play the rush buck end in the R three four, and so that was a huge infusion of talent. And then they signed a billion offensive linemen, uh, making up really for the sins of the previous staff where we're so light on offensive linemen that it really, really hurt us. We're set up to be, I think having good numbers on the offensive line, as long as they continue to take like two to three good players, every class. And maybe like they'll have a a larger bump class within that position, but for the foreseeable future, because they took so many guys in this class and they're all, you know, fairly high ranked. The bulk of them were fairly high rated. So the other, the other need was corner. Um, And not only did they fill that with, numbers they end up with two elite guys in Kyer elam uh nephew of matt elam if you remember him and chris Steele. those are the two highest rated guys in our class so not only did they get the numbers there they got some premier guys for that position i think you'll see those guys on the field early i think this is going to be a you know henderson wilson type scenario where maybe they're not needed but they're going to be available to play and if there is injury you have a a top-end guy waiting there and so Without getting into all the specifics, I thought that it was a well-balanced, um, you know, and hit on needs. That is important. You can't, you can't go away from that. You have to dig a little deep, and that's hard. You can't do that kind of process ratio for every team out there. You have to be very much insider. I would say the one hole is defensive tackle, interior alignment. And Mullen talked about this in his press conference. That's going to be a huge need for next year's class. We only have one guy in this class, and we're going to be graduating a lot of these guys. So, that is a potential problem for this program, but it's in roster building. You're never going to have perfection at every position in terms of numbers. So overall, great job by the staff. And let me talk even closing yesterday. We haven't talked about this. Uh, Florida has ended up on the winners of signing day both times. So both signing days. And the first time was just because we made such a move and signed the three Lakeland guys. And then this time that they inked two guys that they fought hard for. Um, and, you know, I don't like to get, I'm with James on this. I don't like to get too tied up in particular players and we need this guy, but these guys were at positions of need. Uh, Chris Bogle, uh, outside linebacker who we took away from Bama committed to Bama in early January, flipped us in signing day. And then Kyer Elam, as the previously mentioned, 
seemingly in a tight battle with Georgia all the way down to the end. Um, Georgia's, I'm not sure if this is true, but it feels like it hired away our defensive back coach in order to improve their chances of signing him, and I think it backfired on them. Alabama hires our defensive line coach. We get their guy anyway. So I think that shows that there's a bigger narrative that these guys are buying into with Dan Mullen, that he's going to be successful no matter who the individual position coaches are. Now, those guys are significant in recruiting, no doubt. But that's big for Dan Mullen, I think, to win some of these head-to-head battles against Georgia and Alabama. And obviously, he didn't win all of them. Georgia and Bama signed a ton of top guys. But these were guys of critical need for Florida, and that was a big win for the staff. Yeah, that was one of the most encouraging micro stories of of the week for me was you you lose two coaches that are perceived to be good. Now, I know a lot of people think we replaced them with even better coaches, but you lose two that were connected to players that you thought may have influenced the decision at some level, especially in the case of, of uh, Elam and then Georgia. And you wind up getting both of them against two of the, the best recruiting teams in the country. That's a big win. I'm sure Mullen right now is extremely satisfied with holding on and winning those two battles. Uh, you have to win those battles. You know, Urban Meyer famously talked about winning the battle with Tim Tebow in Alabama, which is a very close battle, changing the the whole future of not only the program, but of Urban Meyer's entire career. Uh, and now we don't have necessarily an elite impact player like that. Uh, he's not a quarterback, right? But those are big wins. Those are feel-good stories. I think those are things that the staff builds confidence on, and that's really important. As they go down the path, they know that they can recruit with Alabama and Georgia, even if it's only for a couple of guys here and there, they've won before. They know they can win again. They can look players in the face confidently and talk about that. And I think that's a big step. Secondly, Alan, we had a lot of early enrollees. So on this list, as we scroll down, Florida has a, a in the top half of early enrollees, um, which is solid. Not every class had as many. I think LSU has only maybe four early enrollees compared to our nine, I think is what we wound up with. Right. Um, so that's going to impact the program as well, especially with a developer like Dan Mullen. Now, the next school on our list here, number 10, Clemson, had a whopping 17 early enrollees. Their entire class enrolled early. They only had three top 100 players and one top 30 with a 45% blue chip rate. This is a marked step down for Clemson. Their classes, although you may look at their recruiting rankings, which is why I caution you to do that, you must actually look at the class itself and say, well, wait a minute, they finished... 10th this year they were you know 16th and 7th and 9th you got to look at the classes themselves Clemson has been very good Allen at signing top 30 players and typically even top 10 players as their elite guys this year the class takes a small step back not being a Clemson insider not sure why uh, especially after the run they've been on could just be one of those weird classes where they're filling some needs it's a small class and next year becomes sort of the mega class Uh, but either way that's why it's good to look at it you can there's this there's a big difference in their elite talent level in this year's class. And I think that that's why you see them here at, at 10. Uh, but next, maybe surprising some people, is Auburn at 11. Five top 100 players, one top 30, and two five-stars with a 67% blue rate. That's an excellent class coming out of a Gus Malzahn era that seems to be hotter than ever. How does he pull a class like this? Well, I think they've always recruited well. Um, Auburn has been in that you know, sometimes they're as high as like four or five, you know, down here around 11 or 12. I mean, they're right there. Uh, this is a good result for them. And I think it, I know, Auburn fans are so split on Malzahn, but this has got to be encouraging that he can he can pull this off even in the midst of a lot of 
disharmony and discord <laughs> inside the program. So you can see as we're moving down this list, Alan, that the SEC is dominating the recruiting rankings, which is one reason why uh, the SEC is so hard to win at, right? You had Clemson at number 10. That's your number one ACC school. You do have two Big 12 schools doing well there with Texas and Oklahoma. You have Oregon in the Pac-12, which is far and away the best recruiting school there. And then we get to Tennessee as number 12. So the Pruitt era, off to a better start than I think maybe a lot of people would have thought. They have four top 100s equaling us and two top 30s besting us there with a 57% blue chip rating. So again, you can see, depending on how you look at these classes, Alan, they're almost interchangeable. It's very hard to distinguish what's going on. Uh, you could even make an argument that Tennessee's top heaviness could lead to more impact on the field than our class. Again, no one knows these things. Coaching will come into play. But good to see why we think Florida's in this third tier, but solidly in it, up at the top of it, but not quite in the second tier. Uh, these, these programs are lumped together. But how do you feel about Tennessee's class? Kind of the old guard of the SEC East, Tennessee... Florida, Georgia, rising again, back up to their levels where I think it's great for college football to have those three schools good again, but it seems like trending in that direction. Yeah, if when you hired Pruitt, if you're Tennessee, this was one of the things that you hoped that he would capitalize on, that he would be a very good recruiter. I think this is a very good class, considering how bad they were last year and how how much you know failure they've had over the last five, 10 years, you know, they haven't really been a, an elite program. Now this isn't an elite result, but it could be an elite result for him considering the context. And so if they have some success on the field, you know, who knows? But as we said, this is like, when we talk about the bump class, right? Why in your, after your first year, you should be able to exceed expectations recruiting if you're a good recruiter. So there's no way that Tennessee should have a, a class to side. But if you're a really good recruiter, you can do stuff in your second year that you wouldn't have been able to. Now, if he doesn't produce on the field this year, I think you'll see that lower or even stay the same and not rise. So you're expecting a Florida on the way up, ascending, where we'll have to, Tennessee still has a lot to prove. Um, but if you're hiring Pruitt, that's why you did it, is that you hoped he could pull a class like this. Yeah, hope is at its highest typically in year two, which is why we talk a lot about the elite recruiters revealing themselves in year two is for the, the reasons you just mentioned. Penn State has a sneaky class, Alan. They come in at number 13, but they have five top 100 players, one top 30 player, and a 78% blue chip rating. So again, be careful just looking at ratings and thinking, oh, well, look, well, Penn State's 13th and you know Oregon is this or Oklahoma's that. That class is a good class, very top-heavy class, a lot of quality talent, yet they're clocking in a little further on the list. And then Ohio State, same kind of curious scenario. They didn't sign a lot of guys, Alan. Four top 100, three top 30. And that's with a coaching change. So impressive job by Ryan Day and those guys to pull in a class like that. And a 71% blue chip rating. So again, just be careful. I think the one thing Alan and I really try to get across is you can see that still all these teams we're going down the list on, they have five-star players and we don't. That's the one impact that we are missing. And of course, we are in a state, Alan, where Florida State, number 16 on our list here is in the midst of a free fall and a chaotic meltdown, they have one top 100 player. I don't even have to go back and look at their recruiting rankings to know that has probably never happened in the modern era at right. Florida State. And more importantly, the second year in a row, Alan, there's not a quarterback signed in their recruiting class, and they have a 45% blue chip. This is everything we dreamed of as Florida fans and more for the dumpster fire that is the Willie Taggart era. I mean, put this into context for us. Like, how bad are things at Florida State? This is crazy, right? So if you were going to look at a list of 
um, you know, the last five years, then how did you do relative to that? Who are the biggest risers and followers? So Purdue, which finished at like a 25th, that's a huge upgrade for them. That's the biggest gap from where they were. You know, they're probably in the 40s previously. Florida State was one of the biggest fallers. And so we talked about the narrative around Pruitt, him being an elite recruiter. If you're Florida State, you hire Willie Tiger because he's an elite recruiter. Even though they had a bad year, you would hope that he could sell it more than what he did. This is a disaster for them. If you're relying on being a talent rich program and out, you know, just talenting everybody, that's a strategy, but that's not going to be able to, a strategy that's going to be uphold if they're going to finish 16th with one top 100 guy and no quarterback. So they're down to literally one quarterback on their roster. Everybody else has graduated, been kicked off the team. They have signed no one the last two classes. That was hilarious to watch Willie Taggart in a press conference say, we have a plan. We like our plan. We're not going to talk about it now. <laughs> uh, this is crazy. If James Blackman gets hurt, and he's a thin guy. He's not a big guy. If he gets hurt behind that offensive line, they literally have no other quarterback. Now, they might take a preferred walk-on. Maybe they'll get a grad transfer in here. I assume they're going to have to do something. But as of right now, they have one quarterback, and they've signed nobody in the last two years. They are in trouble, and it's awesome. So if you're Florida, you're looking around at the state of Florida, like Florida State is tumbling. Miami, I'll say Manny Diaz did a good job with the circumstances, but they're they're at 28, right? Not threatening you currently. We took a lot of guys from their class. This is the time for Florida to make a move. The state is wide open for them, and that's part of the optimism. But Florida State, if you're a Florida State fan and you're not jumping up and down the panic button, you're in a huge state of denial. I think that this current Florida State regime could be an NBA case study and a failure of management from top to bottom. There's not a single thing, Alan, that they are doing well. They are messing everything up from recruiting to personnel matters to Francois transferring to on-field issues, to coaching hiring, to everything. I mean, you, it, it's hard to point to a single thing they have done correctly. And to look at how excited the average Florida State fan was to get rid of Jimbo Fisher, who's one of the best coaches in the game, just goes to show you how delusional Florida State fans were. They kind of just believed that because they were Florida State, they would get talent. That's just not the way that it works. And you're seeing that now. Shocking, really, to see what went down. But I know that when Taggart got hired, you and I had the conversation about him, and we said his record is bad. It's not. We think it's great that Florida State's hiring him, and the one thing he could hang his hat on was recruiting. And again, as our insider Tyler Rummery pointed out, his recruiting record was questionable at times. It wasn't necessarily provable that he was this elite recruiter, although this is far below, I think, what anybody would have expected out of a Florida State program with Taggart there. Uh major cause for concern and I think most Florida State fans began to realize that yesterday whatever their hopes were they're being dashed so interesting times for them all right Scott Frost at Nebraska one of the guys we wanted to hire finishes at 20 with one top 100 player and a 22 percent blue chip ratio that's good for Nebraska's classes if you go back they've had some higher ones and Bo Pelini was there in the past many years but 
that goes to show you kind of the rebuild job that Scott Frost has at Nebraska, and you have to contextualize that. That's good. Of course, Dan Mullen looks beautiful here in the state of Florida with our class compared to that one. But yes. that does show that Scott Frost is doing, I think, things we thought he'd be doing there. Program improved, recruiting improved. A little improved, slower. But it's going to be— than what they were hoping for. But they didn't have the kind of success on the field year one. I think that would have translated to like a higher end class. But for Nebraska is nationally, this is not a, a terrible class, but it's going to have to improve. They need, they're going to need to get up around 15, 12 to compete with any kind of like year to year basis. Correct. And if you, if you look at this is the interesting thing about Nebraska's class. If you look at where they are in their own conference, they're like fourth or fifth. So that represents a, a climb to be able to compete. But that is a slower plan. And one thing we talk about in the three-year test is how well you do at an elite school. And I think there's a reason why Scott Frost wasn't super excited about going to Nebraska. It is not anymore an elite school, especially because it is so hard to recruit there. And you're seeing that there, but certainly not, not a flop. I think Nebraska fans will be happy with this class. I think it's a trend up. And I think next year will be a year that will be big for Scott Frost to see who he becomes and what he becomes. All right, Miami clocks in at 28. As you mentioned, Alan, almost a heroic 28. Their entire class had fell apart, and within a month's time, uh, Manny puts it back together. Uh, one top 100 player and a 41% blue chip ratio. So he almost equals what Florida State does <laughs> in the span of a year and a half of recruiting. Uh, but either way, Florida State, Miami down. UCF does not recruit well. USF does not recruit well. So really, it's Florida at the top of the pecking order here, Alan, with the out-of-state schools pecking into Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, others cherry-picking some of our best talent. Right. This is why I think there's a tremendous case for optimism for next year for us being able to sign some of these top 30 guys. Is Several of them are going to reside in the state of Florida. It's the most talent-rich state, and we are not having to compete with in-state rivals as fiercely as we've had in the past 20 years there's a large reason to think that if there was ever a time for this Florida staff to really step up and assert themselves, this upcoming recruiting year would be it. Indeed. And they, they've kept the staff together for the most part. I mean, no staff stays together completely. That's incredibly rare. But this is, you're right. This is a moment where, you know, we'll have to see. They've already begun building some momentum for next year's class. They're, I think it's currently ranked sixth. I mean, I, I put almost no stock in like, whether these kids are going to stick. But you see the it's better to have that kind of movement than not have that kind of movement. Let's talk about the other person that was Florida almost hired, and that was one Chip Kelly. Um, they finished at 43, and I think the only reason why is they signed one top 100 guy who's a pretty good prospect. And everyone else is a three-star. No one is no one else is like above 400. Uh, that's only a 6% uh, ratio. The, the fear with Chip Kelly that he was a disinterested recruiter and did not want to be in coaching college football, does that confirm? Does this confirm that for you? Absolutely. I just think even looking at how he acted after losses last year and his vision for the program, we had it from a good source that he was totally disinterested in college football. We talked about that, Alan, as our own caveat. One important thing to remember on the podcast, when Alan and I are both thinking, hey, these Chip Kelly rumors are great, one thing we mentioned was if you're Scott Strickland, you have to sit in the interview room and ascertain whether or not this guy is serious. I still think that's a guy that you interviewed at that point in time. You absolutely sit down with Chip Kelly. And if you determine in your interview that this guy wants to get to the NFL, you don't hire him. That's kind of the point. It certainly looks to me now 
Like Chip Kelly is exactly what people said he was. He wants to get back to the NFL. He's maybe a little delusional thinking that mailing it in at college is going to get him there. I'm not really sure what he thinks his plan is at UCLA. Languish around for a couple of years and have the NFL come calling. Seems pretty unlikely. But this is historically bad for UCLA. They don't typically recruit in the top 15, but they recruit talented players out of California rather consistently. This is a major alarm bell for any sort of UCLA fan or booster or support base out there. And I think it's safe to say, Alan, I don't know how serious those Chip Kelly talks got with Florida from our understanding they didn't get that serious, but we dodged a bullet here. I think it's safe to say we dodged a major bullet here. Certainly. I I think we both were very interested in hiring. I think you were definitely on the Chip Kelly bandwagon, I think even more firmly than me. But that was because it was a boom or bust hire. It was a home run or strikeout. And he could have been a guy who came in and electrified the fan base. And maybe he would have had more success at Florida, just the infrastructure around him. But this is this is terribly bad. I mean, it's crazy how bad it is. And so right now, uh, I think if you're comparing those two, I mean, Florida is a huge win for not hiring Chip Kelly and for getting Dan Mullen. So let's look now and and put our final thoughts on this. We talked a lot about top 100, top 30, blue chip ratio. A lot of numbers coming at you through your speakers, which can sometimes be a little tricky. But to contextualize it, Alan, we think Florida has a tier three class, almost a tier two class, which was about the best possible finish we could have asked for, given where we were. So we think it was a stratospheric finish, a fantastic second year class. Again, given where we were, This does meet expectations for what we said before the season started. We need to at least be here. So I want to put the bigger context into the biggest context that before the year started, if this was the class you told me we had, I would have said, okay, not where we want to be yet, but that's acceptable. That's acceptable. I mean, for Dan Mullen, who wasn't known to be a recruiter, that gives me hope. And I think that's right where we are. It hasn't proven that he's an elite recruiter yet. But it, it did rescue what looked to be a downward-trending situation and put it now into, I think, what you mentioned, an upward-trending situation. And that's the most important thing that I like to look for in new coaches. You have to keep the momentum going forward. And we've taken big steps of momentum forward. For me, I think it was fantastic finish, an excellent class given where we were. It gives me lots of hope for where we're going next year with the recruiting and the program and the nature of where we're at. I'm very satisfied with how it wound up. Very pleased. It was an exciting day yesterday. That's my sort of bow on this class. How about yours? Yeah, agreed. I feel extremely encouraged. Again, it's you don't want to say like oh, this was the most amazing class of all time. You know, it's not, but it's a really tremendous class for our context right now. And again, ascending. So if you're looking at Dan Mullen as a player developer. He can take this level of talent and make it elite. And now, again, we want to see a few more elite guys in this class so that can push us over the edge where we're competing for championships regularly. And again, Alabama's not the standard because I don't think they ever will be. But you got to get close enough to that to them that when you go head-to-head against them, like, you can compete. Now, you saw where we were under McIlwain, right? We were making the SEC title game and getting obliterated. We Those games were probably even closer than they should have been at the beginning because we were executing on some things that we probably wouldn't do over the long term of the game. And we still got whomped. So if when you approach those games, you have to be able to win them consistently. You're not going to win every one of them, 
But right now, we're I think we're still a step away from that. Now, we could win kind of a one-game scenario, but when you have three or four of those lined up, you know, if we were somehow to make the playoff next year, I don't know that we have the elite-level talent to win two playoff games. So, still a little bit away from where we're ahead, but again, a path to get there. As we were sitting here in August, I think one of the things that was concerning you is that it didn't seem like there was much of a path. It was You have to chop through the jungle to get there, and the staff kind of did. They they were patient, and they pursued the guys they wanted to pursue, and they won out in the end. Uh, so, again, if you're a Florida fan and you're asking, should I be encouraged, is that your baseline question? I would say yes, definitely. And one final note, you'll notice that Michigan was eight and Florida was nine. We talk a lot about bowl games. I don't think the bowl game affected either one of these teams' closings. However, like we like we also have momentum, it was clear that as we said after that bowl game, Alan, it was clear that the average person all of a sudden paid attention and thought that was something. And sometimes that matters to the overall narrative of what's going on in your state. And I'm not going to talk about for these recruits. That didn't matter at all. But let me tell you what it matters for. It matters for the current 9- and 10-year-olds that are playing football. And it's weird to think about it that way. But one of the most important things to do as a program is to be good or elite every 9 to 10 years. Why? Because it replants you into the minds of kids that are considering programs down the road. And you cannot underestimate that kind of importance. You can look at Miami for a case study and what that means. Hmm. For the 80s and 90s, they were the program. They get smacked with probation. But in 2000s, they come back early on and they last. It has now really been, Allen a good 16 years since Miami's been relevant. And you can see that in the recruiting classes. As Florida State, it's been 30 years since they've been irrelevant in reality. And it would take many years before kids don't think Florida State can't be good again. So put that out there as a marker. Florida's in this important stage where it's now been a decade, Alan, since we've been really good. But the kids that we're recruiting right now remember that. But if three or four or five more years go by and we're not elite, the new recruits you're getting are starting from zero. Like that Florida was really not a thing. So we are at a very crucial stage of program building. And uh, I'm excited about where we're going. And I think Dan Mullen has exceeded expectations on the field. He's now meeting and possibly even exceeding expectations recruiting-wide, especially given where we were. And so things are pointing up on the field next year. We'll have plenty to talk about with regards to the team's weaknesses entering into the season. We do have some causes for concern, but there's plenty of reason to believe that we have a guy in Dan Mullen that looks like he may exceed all of our expectations for who he may become. And there's good reason to put hope in that. And, and hope, even if it leaves you disappointed and in grief, Allen, is good to have. And it's been a while, I think, since we've had something actionable to hope on. All right, let's talk about the transfer portal. A couple things happened. Jalen Hurts goes to Oklahoma. Did you like this choice by him? I liked it a lot for him. I think he can be a guy who could flourish in that system. I mean, I think obviously he'll run a little bit more. But I was impressed with the way he threw the ball in certain moments throughout the year. He looked like he had improved. Now we're going to get a chance to see that in Oklahoma because they're going to, if he's able to, they're going to allow him to throw the ball. So if he's not throwing it well, that means he's not taking the kind of steps. I think in his mind, he still thinks he's probably an NFL player. I don't know that he is at quarterback, but we'll find out. He's going to get the opportunity to play in that really prolific system that's produced the last two Heisman winners. So if you're him, I don't know how you would have chosen anywhere else. So great fit for him. I don't know that it's going to work out for Oklahoma like it did with Kyler Murray. Yeah, and phenomenal result for him personally. Phenomenal handling by Alabama. I thought the continual parade of honoring him as a human being was really great. Um, even though I know it's a little self-aggrandizing as it makes Alabama look good for doing it, it doesn't matter. Like, say what you want about Nick Saban and some of the stuff he does, but 
that was a very impressive way to handle a guy who put the team first in a culture that rarely does that. And so I, I'm happy for him to get this opportunity at a school that I think can really feature a quarterback. Like you said, it remains to be seen whether or not he has the right skill set there. The guys, the two guys of form are prolific throwers of a football, and he is not. And so we're going to see how Lincoln Riley handles a guy that's not a natural thrower. Not that he couldn't do it, but you have two guys that are just slinging the ball out there naturally. Speaking of a guy slinging the ball, Kyler Murray to the draft. We talked a to little, the NFL draft. Yeah, to the NFL draft, not the, not the major league baseball. We talked a little bit about this. We said, hey, this guy gets up high enough. The guaranteed money for being a quarterback is a million times higher than anything he'd sign on a baseball contract. Um, and especially you're not languishing in the minor leagues. You can always go back to baseball if for some reason football didn't work out. Do you like the decision for him to go to the NFL draft? Do you feel like this is a good decision for him? Well, I don't know. I would push back on the idea that you can go back to baseball. Usually it goes the other way. Guys fail at baseball and come back to football because football is the easier sport to play if you can rely mostly on your athleticism. It's less skillful, you know, with the exception of, of quarterback. I like it. I, You know what? I, I don't feel like I have this huge bias against shorter quarterbacks, but he might be too small. He does throw the ball really well into tight windows with good anticipation. A lot going for him. I will say that I would be nervous to draft him. The Jaguars, my team, will probably be in a position to do so. And I'm not sure that I want them to. I don't know. So I think he'll he's going to get drafted first round, seemingly. Unless some bad things happen between now and then for him at the Combine and whatnot. Um. I don't know. I mean, baseball, it's not a guarantee. Now, if you are a top-end baseball player, you will make more than a top-end NFL player. But quarterback's the one position where you can make a lot of money for a long time. But I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure that financially, who knows what the path would have been for him in baseball. But he's going to make a lot of money quickly playing football. And maybe that's worth more in the long term. And if you know what, hey, Here's the unknown. I don't. If this is purely a business decision, that's one thing. But if he wants to play football, that has to be taken into account. And only Kyler, Kyler Murray can answer that question. And I think that's probably the case here. You hate to think that guys are, especially young guys or even old guys or even anyone anyone's age, is going to do something just for money because we know that doesn't make anybody happy. And you hope people counseling him would say, do what you desire to do in this regard. You have a choice to make. You have two choices. Pick one of them. Pick the one that interests you more. But what you said, Alan, is also true is if he goes to the NFL, the guaranteed money early is better and safer than it would be in baseball, given his level. Here's what I think he's going to be like, and I think you need to hit the nail on the head. I think he's going to be a boom-bust kind of guy. I don't see him being in the NFL for five years and then going to baseball. I see him being in the NFL for two years and then going to baseball. I think he tries this, and if he doesn't feel like he's getting it quickly, I think you see him go to baseball, a sport where I think he definitely has a high potential of becoming a major leaguer, whereas in football, he's a grand experiment. I think if he's wise, he tries the experiment and gives up on it very quickly, but it doesn't seem to be something within his skill set. That's why I think he's such a risk for a team. I think his contract will be wildly interesting to see how they structure guaranteed money versus incentive money because I think every GM has got to be thinking the same thing I am, which is he's going to have baseball in the back of his mind always, and he's going to know what you just said. The longer he waits the less likely it is he has a prominent big league career. That's got to affect a GM's decision. So we're going to see what happens, who takes him, how that works. Should be interesting. Should make for good draft day drama. So, James, we didn't get a chance to talk about the national championship. 
on our previous podcast we were recording just before that. Uh, thinking back, it's kind of, kind of a long way away, but just to capture some thoughts, I'll ask, how shocked were you by that result? That was baffling. I mean, we we talked about it on the pod. I mean, this is this is a, a Clemson team who has a freshman quarterback who the moment probably was going to be difficult for him with a, a defense schemed for him by Nick Saban. Um, really surprising to me with how Alabama played in that game. You saw some incredibly bad decisions. The fake field goal was mind-boggling from a Nick Saban staff. Uh, and I think what you saw, Alan, was this concept or this feeling of human nature. When things start to spiral out of control, even for the best tacticians or strategists, your human emotion can make you do really stupid things. And we haven't seen Nick Saban in that kind of position very often. And I think, quite frankly, he just panicked. Um, but all the credit goes to the game plan that Clemson had. And most importantly, the game that Trevor Lawrence had. I mean, come on. That is unreal to me as a true freshman that you could come in with those kind of lights. And I understand that Alabama blew some coverages there, but a large reason they did was because Trevor Lawrence is such a good reader of the football field as a freshman. He's doing things that that seniors in college don't do. And he was consistently doing it. He killed them on third down. It was amazing. It was an amazing quarterback display to watch. It shocked me entirely. Uh, I did not think Clemson was capable of that kind of blowout result in a dominating fashion. Um, and it goes, I think, to show, Alan, what we've talked about on this podcast all show long, elite players make the difference. And make no mistake about it. Trevor Lawrence is the highest rated quarterback recruit ever. Higher than Andrew Luck, higher than anyone that's ever been measured. And he has not only lived up to that, he maybe even exceeded it as a freshman. Like, I don't know what else he can do now. You almost just wish he could leave and go to the NFL because anything else he does will never be that. Well, he would be the number one pick in this year's draft, even after his freshman year, which is kind of crazy to say. You don't ever really say that about players. I was extremely impressed by Clemson, but I will say if you ran this game back, I think this is a small percentage of the results. I think Clemson made a ton of big plays on third down. That It's hard to win the game by executing on third down so consistently and so emphatically like they did. I think Alabama played one of the poor games they would play if you – simulate this game a thousand times. I think Tua made the kind of mistakes I was expecting Trevor Lawrence to make. So credit to Lawrence that he didn't make those fresh mistakes. That's why I was picking Alabama. I thought it would be kind of close. And there would just be one or two times where Lawrence would do something. He would take a hit he shouldn't, throw a pick he shouldn't, you know, get, not be in the right play when it, when there's an, an optimal thing that could have happened for Clemson. But Bama played bad. I think what showed up for them is the attrition in the secondary. We just assumed that they just reload every time. And the guys they have out there are not the same guys they've had the last couple of years. It hurts eventually when you lose Mika Fitzpatrick and the players of his ilk over and over again. Now, they've obviously reloaded. They were still talented, but they weren't as elite as they have been in the back end. And I don't know. This, is, this wasn't a vintage Alabama defense. That was obviously still very good, but Clemson took advantage of them. They were extremely well prepared. And then you're basically, I mean, at this point in his career, you're basically having an NFL quarterback playing college football. That is so rare, especially it's astonishing from a freshman. So I I, I don't know, is the rest of Trevor Lawrence's career going to be a disappointment if he doesn't win the national championship the next two years? I mean, that was crazy how well he played. And 
you know, hats off to Dabo and what they've built there. Um, it's really one of the more incredible success stories in college football over the last 50 years, really. Yeah, and you also saw something that I think finally caught up with Nick Saban. His coaching staff this season was inferior. That's a good point. And that got him, and that's well publicized. I think he knows it. Um, you know, He mentioned it after the game, but I think he really knows that he had an inferior staff, and they got undressed by a cohesive, long-standing staff in Clemson that's gone up against Alabama now for a while, that knows what they like to do. And I think they, they tendency-read them all game long, and that really punished Alabama. A few teams have maybe such a good bead uh, on Alabama, as Clemson does right now. And like you mentioned, they had the X factor. And, and, and all hats off to decision-making here, Alan. We talked about the day Kelly Bryant was gone. That was on our podcast, on our show. And we said this was the right decision for the program. Dabo Sweeney's job is to do what's best for the program, even if it's difficult. And he did it. And you have to applaud that. That was not an easy decision. That's a great point. Dabo is a guy that loves his players. He treats people fairly by all accounts. He goes to bat for them. You know that was breaking his heart to have to do that to a guy like Kelly Bryant. But he made the right call. That's what your job is as a coach, and he reaped the rewards of that. And I think that's another, you know, on the coaching corner segment of the podcast, a good little piece there that's there. All right, I'm going to ask you this question that you're going to ask me. I'm going to flip it on you. All right, we're playing Miami next year in our opener in Orlando. So those of you that don't know that, congratulations. We have a real opening game next year against the Hurricanes. Are you excited about this game? I think so. I mean, more so than I was throughout the year. I mean, I don't really get revved up playing Miami, but it is an intriguing game. And it's a it's an intriguing moment to play them because I think we could potentially go out and lay the smackdown against them. Maybe not. It's going to be Manny Diaz's first game as a head coach. Who knows what he'll be like or how they're going to compete. I mean, he could be a genius and we're seeing the birth of a legend or he could be terrible. All those things are on the table. He's an intriguing guy for them. I don't know. I I like playing Miami. I don't think we need to play Miami every year. I think that would be too top-heavy of a schedule. But these you know, neutral site games are kind of fun. It's in Orlando. I wouldn't say I'm like incredibly amped, but I am very intrigued. And I don't know. Are, are you considering going? I will definitely be there. I'm, okay. I'm very excited about it. But keep in mind, I grew up right outside Coral Gables. I went to all the Hurricane games as a kid. They were winning national championships. They were great. I wanted to go there. You know, my dad at the tender age of 12 sat me down and said, hey, Miami's a private school. It's not really a great school. I'm not really going to send you there. If you want to go to a private school, you can go to a different one and pick your own, do whatever. But that's not what's happening. That's a weird conversation I have with a 12-year-old. Yeah. But my dad's kind of that way. <laughs> and that didn't really ruin the dream for me. Thankfully, I, I, I grew up coinciding with them getting slapped with probations and a bunch of other stuff. And, and truly, Alan, until I was at Florida uh, and we lost to them at Miami, when Brock Berlin did the Gator Chomp throat slash to my student section, my Miami fandom was still there. And that sort of kind of knocked it out forever. I still see the helmet and get nostalgic. Of course I do. As a kid, I lived there. But I love playing Miami. I, I love the prospect of this game right now. We are ascending. Uh, Miami's going to be excited because I can tell you one thing. The Miami fans and Miami as a whole, they love Manny Diaz. They love that guy. Like that's their guy. So I think they know they have deficiencies, but they are going to be delusionally sky high coming into that game, thinking that we are a beatable team, which we could be, you know, for sure. So I think it's an intriguing start to the season. It doesn't scare me. We have more talent than Miami does, so I feel better about that than other season openers. But I think it should be fun. I think a State of Florida game like this should be fun, and I'm with you. Our schedule is too hard to be playing Miami and Florida State and other teams all the time. 
But I like it. I'm excited about it. I think anytime Miami and Florida can play, it doesn't happen too often. It's it's good for the state. I think it's 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 it should be, I think, really a great opener to the season. Yeah, the closer that we get to this and you kind of turn my attention from you know, the 2018 season to the 2019 season. I, I, I'm intrigued by the game. I, I think I'm going to try and get, get to it if I can. Um, you know, we're playing Michigan and Dallas. It's like, oh, man, this is kind of cool. But, man, it feels like we're going to get stomped. And we did. So I don't think we were too excited about it. But I feel like, yeah, the, a lot more confidence in the direction of the program. And so, yeah, let's bring on a challenge like Miami. Now, they're not going to be as good, I don't think, as Michigan was last year. But – um, it's a good test early on for this program, and it could set them up for a really, really nice season. We're going to talk a lot more about that overall um, as we get closer. But just briefly, um, we're, we're not going to stay on this too long. Uh, Mike White in the Florida Gator basketball program. Uh, you've been very vocal in our, our group chats about this. Uh, this might be another situation where you and I are on opposite ends here. Uh, how upset slash frustrated are you with our current state? I first want to say I'm frustrated with Justin Seitz for propping up the program and thinking we'd make the basketball tournament, the NCAA tournament this year, and that he, we quote, wouldn't have lows as low as we had in the previous year, which you and I both questioned when he made that comment. Wait a minute. Last year was a pretty good year. I had a lot of highs. Oh, man, there have been some lows. Uh, I think the narrative for me is this. Mike White is obviously an outstanding recruiter. And you absolutely give him next year to see what he can do. No doubt. Fine. I'm fine with that. I agree with that. That's important to say right away. I'm not advocating firing Mike White because it's very possible, Alan, he is a recruiter primarily and a coach very secondarily. Our offensive sets are almost non-existent. We don't run plays. We don't have sets. We don't know what we're doing. We don't move. Uh, even even the college basketball analysts, which tend not to be super great, are consistently commenting on our lack of movement on offense, lack of cohesion, lack of organization. It's consistent every single game. On the flip side, we play phenomenal defense. So he simultaneously gets a lot of effort out of these guys. And I think that's what he is. I think he's a player's coach that, not in the sense that they love him, I think, he, I think he's hard on them, but he's able to get top players to play for him and he's able to get them to play hard. Uh, but with all that being said, I have a major concern for how we run offense. And I don't know that just bringing in top talented guys to run that on their own with their own creativity is going to solve the problem against other elite teams. So I'm going to give the panic button illustration here. I am firmly on the panic button for Mike White's coaching ability. Okay. Silver lining being that in college basketball, you can win if you bring in elite talent, especially Mike White's a young guy, he's a smart guy especially if you couple that with guys on your staff that can coach. And I think that might be our biggest problem right now. There's not a single guy on our basketball coaching staff, in my opinion, that has a discernible offensive acumen. And I would like to see Mike White in the offseason hire an offensive-minded coach who's got a good system to run, something to do to help. We clearly need it. Billy Donovan did this time and time again in his career. He brought Larry Shiat in, and it changed all of Billy Donovan's future. Um, he, he was not good on defense, admittedly. We couldn't coach defense. And then Larry Shia comes in and the rest is history with Billy Donovan. So this can be done. That's why I say I'm not like totally off the train yet because when you recruit this well, you can win. But the offense, Alan, has been unbelievably frustrating for me. If you're a Gator basketball fan, I, I cannot put into words how mind-numbingly silly it is 
Um, if we were doing a podcast on it, we could break down the film and go into depth on just how inexplicable it is. Basketball is not that difficult to run a system in, and yet we don't do it. So you're on a different end, possibly. Give me the hope and the reason why yeah. I shouldn't be so firmly on this panic button. I don't know if I'm wrong about this, but I, I don't feel any sort of panic or, you know, like, oh, no, the sky is falling. I, of course, I'm frustrated when we lose close games. The South Carolina game was terrible that we lost in that fashion. I think that we're hanging with some of these top teams is overall encouraging to me because I, I think we have a extremely flawed team. We're starting three freshmen ostensibly our best player. I'd have no idea what's wrong with him in Jalen Hudson. Uh, Kevon Allen was really bad in non-conference where he could have picked up some wins. He's playing really well now and keeping us afloat. We're, we're playing a, a true freshman point guard almost the entire game. He does some things really well. And I think he's going to be excellent, but he does a lot of freshman things, gets himself into bad situations where he ha- he's forced to take bad shots. He's not playing at the speed that we need him to play. Um, there are some bright spots in this roster, but it's it's a thin roster too. And these guys are gassed, I think, at, at the end of a lot of these games because of the minutes that they're having to play. But they're getting a ton of great experience. They're going to be well-seasoned already as sophomores. And you have maybe one of the better recruiting classes in the history of Florida basketball coming in next year. So I'm really intrigued to see where it takes us. And when you hire a guy like Mike White, Mike White he's not a fully formed individual you're not hiring a 55 year old you're hiring a what is he 30 i mean who knows who can say that information is unknowable a young guy and your hope is that he's going to get better and that he's going to fix some of the things you're right when you look at our coaching staff it's all younger guys who are excellent recruiters and that's where he staked his claim and it's gotten us to this point i do think we need some help offensively but if you can bring in elite talent and get them to play hard that's going to take you majority of the way that'll that'll Get most of the way there for you. Um, and the guys that he's bringing in, I think, are going to be able to score the ball next year. So, we'll see. Uh, if you want to come over to my side and and have some peace and just hang out and enjoy the season. You know, I think we probably won't make the tournament, but we might. Or you can be hopping up and down the panic button unnecessarily over there with James. You can take your pick. That information is unknowable. That's <laughs> the greatest. That's the greatest line of our 2019 podcast episode so far. I can't stop laughing about it. Uh, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I think that player development is a good sign of a good coach. We've talked about it with Mullen. So far, little to no player development. It's not over. He is younger. Yes. There is player development. I, I want to say that you know, Chris Chioza got better along the way. I thought Keystone made major steps until, weirdly, he regressed this year. He was capable of bringing in grad transfer guys and getting them to play well within our system immediately. I think these freshmen are going to get better. Now, weirdly... Jalen Hudson got worse. I But I don't know that necessarily you can pin that on Mike White. Maybe. Kayvon Allen is a weird case. He was playing really bad last year, really bad at the beginning of this year. He's playing well again. I, he could just be a head case in that you have no idea what you're going to get from him, and he's really difficult to manage. Not that he's like, like a jerk. Maybe he is, but that he's just not mentally very tough. So... Again, I, I don't know that there's no player development. I, I, that That is a thing that gets thrown out there, but I, I don't know if I agree with that assessment. I like it. You are an ardent Mike White well, hope producer. No, that's not bad. That's good. There's I'm two, just reading the data here, James. There's two sides of this coin. That's why we wanted to have it's this early. Discussion. So this is what you were Correct. both projecting with yes. very little data on Mike White, both at Florida and historically. So you're having to make a lot of projections. My projection is just a little more 
positive, yes. or maybe way more positive. And that's I guess. yeah, way more positive. But I, like I said, there are narratives for recruiters to win. But I think that's why it's fun to have this discussion right now because you don't know the future. I think that sensible steps should be taken by him to recognize where we are. Agreed. I will say this, of course, being from Baltimore, Maryland, I love Locke. Locke's my guy. Oh, he's amazing. Baltimore hero. He's a beast. And you know, we watched Trey Mann play. Uh, down in Ocala, and he's tremendously skilled and create his own shot. It's clear that Mike White's system is to have a team full of guys that can all create their own shots. That's true. Um, no doubt about it. We don't have that right now. I just wonder about the real success level of that in college basketball. We're going to find out. We'll see. It'll be fun. Maybe, or it won't be fun. It'll be torturous. But either way, <laughs> we are pulling in a tremendous amount of talent. Next year's team will be the most talented team, I think, in the history of Florida basketball well, especially in as terms far of recruiting as recruiting rankings, rankings yeah. right? I mean, certainly to equal the production in the NBA of, of the O4s, that may never happen again. But on paper, I think it's safe to argue it will be the most talented recruiting star ranking team we've ever had, which will be exciting. So maybe we're just trying to wait to get to next year. All right, Alan, close us, close us out. Okay, guys, we're going to return in April before the spring game. We'll get you caught up on... Maybe some of the storylines of the spring, what should have been happening, what we're hopeful for to get a glimpse of in that spring game. And we'll do a, a wrap-up after that as well. So enjoy your February. Enjoy your March. Enjoy the beautiful weather. And we'll see you back here. It's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.